Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please take them out and open to the book of Malachi. If you've been coming the last few Sundays, you're probably getting pretty good at flipping to the book of Malachi, but if you're not sure where it is, remember it's the last book in the Old Testament, so you can open up to the first book of the New Testament and just go back one. Today we're going to be looking at the fifth disputation of the book of Malachi. So remember from our previous sermons, a disputation or a dispute is basically just an argument. And these disputes within the book of Malachi are between God and the nation of Israel. Now, remember that the prophet Malachi strange as it probably looked to those around him, was acting out both sides of this debate. He was speaking on the one hand for the Lord, and he was, on the other hand, speaking for the nation of Israel. So keep that in mind as we read this morning's text. We're going to be in verse 6, and we will read through verse 12. So follow along as I read. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and fully sufficient word. Amen? Join me now in prayer. Father, as we study this text this morning, I pray that you would help us apply it to our own hearts. That as you see fit, you would use these words to encourage, to correct, and convict us. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. This sermon is going to be broken into two parts this morning. Each part will be a question. The first question will be, what did this text mean to the people of Israel? The original hearers of Malachi's words. The second question will be, what does this text mean for us today? Sounds simple enough, right? Well, given what we know about the sometimes strange behaviors of God's prophets, it's hard not to imagine Malachi looking sort of crazy when he's giving this presentation. Remember, he's speaking for God and for Israel. You can almost imagine him as having like puppets on his hands. We, We tend to, as Christians, sometimes think that prophets were actually a little bit crazy. That they were sort of like spiritual mediums who would go into a sort of trance and start to utter words that were not their own. Maybe words that they didn't even themselves understand. 
and were only understood later by Christians reading the scriptures. Well, Malachi knew exactly what he was doing. We have to think about prophets not as crazy spiritual mediums, but as ambassadors of God, God's messengers. The words Malachi was speaking and the things he, were, he was doing, he was doing intentionally. You see, being God's messenger was a lot like being a diplomatic emissary for God. You see, in the ancient world, kings from powerful nations would often come to rulers of smaller, weaker nations. And rather than just destroying these nations, they would offer to establish a covenant with these nations. Now, we've mentioned the definition of covenant that we frequently used in our congregation as a, a agreement or a relationship based on a promise. So these powerful, mighty kings would come to these smaller nations and say, look, I'll let you keep living in this land, and I'll offer you my protection and resources, and all you need to do is recognize my kingly authority, pay honor and tribute to me, and we'll be good. So should this little nation decide to stop paying tribute to the king and honoring the king of this mighty, powerful nation, if the king was merciful, he would frequently send an emissary, an ambassador to the smaller nation to remind them of their covenant obligations and to warn them of the terms of the agreement. Well, Yahweh and the people of Israel had a similar covenant relationship. And today's text shows that God is a merciful king. Look at verses 6 through 7 here. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Brothers and sisters, the Lord does not change. The theological term for this unchangeableness of God is His immutability. God is immutable. Now there's some really interesting theological and philosophical conversations we could go into when we think about God's immutability. Things about His essential nature that we could point to and ponder here. But I think that would actually miss the point of the text in this instance. You see, God is simply saying that He is faithful. His fidelity to His people is in the context of His covenant with Israel. His fidelity to His people is in sharp contrast in this instance to their infidelity, to their spiritual adultery and turning away from Him. So this text is showing us the extent of God's patience. Despite His people's disobedience, He remains unchanged in His faithfulness. He remains a God who is slow anger. He remains a God that is abounding in steadfast love. He remains a God who shows mercy to those who deserve justice. Yahweh, the infinitely powerful creator of the universe, has graciously stooped down and entered into a covenant with this weak, disobedient, idolatrous, stiff-necked people, knowing that they would disobey Him from the moment that covenant began. And yet time after time, we see God using His prophets to come call His people back to Him rather than giving them what they deserved. As our brother Sean DeMars put it, 
God here is like a woman whose husband has committed adultery against her. Yet she's willing to forgive him, to stay married to him, to stick it out. If he'll just come back to her, if he'll just come home. What I want you to see here is this. The people of God deserved to be abandoned. And yet God is benevolently sending them a messenger to call them to return to him. Remember also the context of God's faithfulness here and his people's unfaithfulness is this covenant relationship. As part of this covenant with Israel, God promised that his people would be his treasured possessions among all of the peoples of earth. He promised them that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He promised to give them the land of Canaan, the promised land. He promised to bless them in this promised land with good weather, which in turn meant successful crops and healthy livestock. He promised to bless them by increasing their population, by giving them health, by giving them victory in war against their enemies, and protecting them from foreign invaders. But these covenant blessings were conditional. They depended on the faithful obedience of His chosen people. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we read, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Should Israel fail to meet these covenant obligations, their covenant also promises curses upon them. These curses were really nothing more than God removing His blessing. We see also in Deuteronomy 28, a little later, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Instead of rain, the rebellious people of Israel were to receive drought. Instead of bountiful harvest, they would toil and struggle against locusts and pestilence and receive very little. This is exactly what we see happening in our text today. In verse 9, we read God saying, you are cursed with a curse. We know this was an agricultural curse because when God speaks of lifting it, what does He promise? Look at verse 10. He says He will not just offer rain, but an enormous amount of rain, more than their crops could ever need. He says He will open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. The language He's using here borrows imagery from Genesis speaking of the flood of Noah. This is an abundance of blessing. In verse 11, the Lord goes on to say that He will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil 
and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. It might be hard for us in our society today to grasp how significant this type of curse was for an agricultural people like the nation of Israel. This was the basis of their whole economy. This is not just how they fed themselves. This is everything to them. But this curse also should not have been a surprise to them. These are literally the curses written into their covenant. It's not like the fine print of an iTunes agreement. The words are right there. If you are unfaithful to this covenant, this is what will happen. The problem Israel was experiencing, this curse was ultimately at root, not a lack of rain. It wasn't a problem with locusts. It was their disobedience. It was their unfaithfulness to uphold their part of their covenant obligations to God. Verse 7 makes this clear. God says, You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. I want to take a moment here to warn you about this text. This is important. Listen carefully. Do not confuse these curses and blessings in this text today that we're talking about right here with the issue of salvation. If we make that mistake, we can read this text and it will look like God is telling the Israelites, obey me and you can earn my saving grace. That is not what God is saying here. Look again back at verse 6. God is saying that the only reason that His people aren't consumed by His righteous wrath is that He is God. His mercy is unchanging. His electing love is unchanging. He is still slow to anger and patient towards His people. In other words, this whole, pa- this, this whole passage, this dispute, begins with God's grace. The message is not, obey and you will receive saving grace. The message is, I am giving you grace you don't deserve. And in response to that, you should obey. Obedience is not the grounds of our salvation. It is the fruit of what comes from the blessings that God has given us. These blessings and curses today in this context are a matter of discipline. God disciplines His people. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12 say this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves Him who He loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So when Israel broke the covenant with the Lord and disobeyed him, he could have destroyed him, but instead, in his love, he caused them to suffer to a degree for a time that they might turn away from their idols and turn back to him, that they might turn away from their unbelief and their disobedience and turn back toward the God who chose them and loved them. In today's text, we see their disobedience in particular was their failure to tithe. Their being disciplined 
because of their failure to obey the command to give back, to tithe to the Lord. So what is this tithe? How would they have understood this, Malachi's audience? Well, they would have been familiar with texts like Leviticus 27, where we read, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. What we're seeing in this text is that the tithe was Israel taking the abundance of what God had given them and giving a portion back to Him. Basically, if a shepherd had nine sheep, then the tenth one would be set aside as the Lord's. If a farmer harvested nine bundles of wheat, the tenth would be set aside for the Lord. But why would God command His people to give Him produce and livestock? God doesn't need to eat. God isn't hungry for food. One of the primary reasons that God instituted the tithe as part of this covenant with His people was His way of ensuring that the tribe of the Levites, that the priestly tribe, would be fed and cared for. So God instituted the priests as, his, as Israel's intercessors who would stand between them and God, the sinful people who deserve God's wrath, and a righteous and holy and just God. And these priests filled that role of offering up sacrifices to God on Israel's behalf. This wasn't just a weekend gig. The Levites, the priests, had a responsibility and had no inheritance of land from God in the promised land. And so the Levites would take the tithe as not just a way to give offerings to God, but as a way to put food on their table. This is how God's people fed their priestly intercessors. Numbers 18 reads, For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. The prophet Nehemiah, who probably lived around the same time as Malachi, also calls the people to repent of failing to pay their tithes to the Levites. And when he comes back and he sees that they're not giving to the priests, he knows this because he sees the Levites have gone back to their fields. They've had to start working and toiling like farmers in order to put food on their table instead of doing what God has instituted them to do. Not only did this tithe support the intercessory work of the priests, the tithe in Israel helped to care for widows, for poor, and for sojourners amongst the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 14 we read, At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled. So when the tithe wasn't paid, the weakest and most vulnerable people in Israel didn't eat. And the priests God had instituted to perform their work couldn't perform their duties. 
So what's God's response to this disobedience of His people? You are robbing me. You are robbing me. You see, the people of Israel aren't failing to take something that's theirs and to give it to God. They're failing to give God something that He has already laid claim to. Something that is rightfully His, that they are withholding from Him. In a very real way, they are stealing from God. In response to this infidelity, the Lord calls His people to repent. Look at verse 7 again. Return to Me, and I will return to you. Again, we are faced with God's mercy here. His patience on full display. Not only is He giving them the opportunity to turn back to Him, He is promising that if they will repent of their sin, He will lift this covenant curse from His people and He will bless them with abundant rain and abundant harvest. So the people of Israel, when they heard this, they would have understood that they were being called to repent and to obey. But what does this text mean for us? How are we to understand this? Immediately, the question we need to ask, when we, especially when we look at prophets of the Old Testament, is where was Malachi's audience in God's story? And how is that different from where we are in God's story? What separates us? What's different between us? If we don't ask that question, we run the risk of making serious errors in the way we apply this text to our lives. At this point, I want to make a second very important warning about this text in particular. You will often hear these very verses, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, being twisted and abused by prosperity preachers. Those false teachers that, that teach that God promised to bless Israel agriculturally, agriculturally and if they, if they paid their tithe, if you, if you give money to God, He'll give blessings to you. And that therefore, that means if you give money to me, if you give money to this church, God will give more money to you. He will bless you materially. Just give a little more to God. He'll increase your paycheck. Just be a little more faithful, a little more obedient. Just sin a little bit less. And God will give you a bigger house. He'll get you a better job. God will make sure you drive a nicer car. Brothers and sisters, this teaching destroys souls. As our brother Sean prayed this morning, this teaching is around us in this city everywhere. And it is sending people to hell. It turns faithful obedience to God, that response to His grace and mercy, into a means to, a, to an end. It makes God a genie in a bottle that if you want something, you just rub God the right way and He'll give it to you. Instead of viewing God as the King of the universe who owes us nothing. It lines the pockets of wolves in sheep's clothing like T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland. And it gives us nothing 
and the way of eternal hope. What I want you to see this morning is how that false teaching is taking this text and twisting it. First, look carefully at what kind of blessings God is offering and who He's offering them to. He is offering national blessings to a community. These blessings are corporate in nature. He's not giving Israel individual prosperity. He's not giving Israel blessings of individual wealth. He's not promising, hey, you over there, you're going to drive a nice car, you're going to have a nice farm or more land or a bigger house. He's building up His covenant people. And why is He doing that? This is important. The aim of God's blessings is not to give Israel their best life now. It's not so that they can live more comfortably. It's not so they can wear nice clothes. Look at verse 12. After God promises to bring this nation seed, fruit, and livestock through rain, God says, then all nations will call you blessed. God wants Israel to prosper so everyone else in the world can see His grace on display. God wants to build Israel up so that they can be a trophy of His magnificence to shine light out to the rest of the world. The design is to give Him glory, not to give material prosperity to any individual. In fact, these very blessings that we see Israel getting here, the promised land itself, and all the fruit that came with it, are merely a dim shadow of the blessings that were to come. And that brings us to the real difference between us and the people Malachi was prophesying to. We live on the opposite side of that great fulcrum of history, which is the cross of Christ. See, like the people of Israel, every single one of us in this room this morning deserves to be destroyed. You see, Scripture teaches that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned. Scripture also teaches that the wages of sin is death. And whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. But a few hundred years after the prophet Malachi's life, the Son of God came to earth. He lived a perfect life that we could never live. He suffered and died on a cross bearing the wrath of God that sinners like us deserved. And in doing so, Christ ushered in a new covenant, a better covenant. And in this new covenant, God's people are no longer a mix of believers and unbelievers, united by an ethnic and a national identity. Every single believer in the new covenant is spirit-filled, bought by the blood of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit, kept by the power of God. This also means that there are no such things as new covenant curses. You see, Jesus became the curse of the law for our sake. That curse rested on Him, not us. It's true that the Lord does still discipline His children, but He will not cut Himself off from those who He has saved. 
If you are here this morning and you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, ask yourself this. Will you get what you deserve? For those of us who are in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Our wicked and imperfect lives are covered by Christ's righteousness. We will never receive what we deserve. Instead, we will inherit the blessings of eternal life and a new creation and God Himself. But if you're not a Christian, sitting here this morning, you are dangling by a thread over the chasm of hell. The only thing keeping your heart beating and keeping you breathing from moment to moment is God's grace. Someday, you will die. And you will stand before God and you will not be able to plead innocence or ignorance for your sins. And you will be cursed to an eternity of suffering His wrath. So friend, if you are not a Christian, I say this to you this morning, out of love and a genuine concern for your soul, turn to Christ. Trust in Him. And you will find that He is faithful to forgive and does not change. If you're not sure if you're a Christian, please, Talk to someone in this room today before you leave. It's Christ's work on the cross that ultimately separates us from the people who first heard Malachi utter these words. So what does this call to repentance and obedience look like for us as members of the new covenant? Well, unlike Israel, we are not required to tithe. There are two simple reasons for that. First, we are not under the covenant of Moses. The particular laws and stipulations that God gave to the people of Israel do not apply to us. Because again, we are under a new and better covenant. The author of Hebrews makes this abundantly clear when commenting on the prophet Jeremiah's promise of this new and better covenant says... In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. The second reason that we can know that we're no longer required to tithe is that there are no more Levites. There are no more priests among us. Recall that the priests were those Levites who served as the intercessors between God and His people. Well, Jesus has replaced all all of that. Jesus is our high priest. He is the means by which we can have direct communion and fellowship with God. Again, the author of Hebrews writes, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He, speaking of Jesus, holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. 
And in a very real way, we as believers are all priests. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we, as Christians, are under no obligation to tithe. So does that mean we are free to spend our money however we like? Does that mean we can keep whatever we're given, spend it frivolously even if we want? Well, God's law is good. The aims of God's law, the general principles of God's law, even though aspects of that law were given to Israel and not to us, those principles are still morally binding on us as Christians. The general equity of those principles is applied to us in the New Testament. And so unsurprisingly, that means in the New Testament, we see regular commands to give generously to the poor and to the servants of God. Let's look first at how the New Testament commands us to give to those who are weakest and most in need. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells His flock to sell their possessions and give to the needy. In Matthew, when confronting the rich young ruler who was living a life of idolatry, He tells him to sell all of his possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. The author of Hebrews tells us not to neglect to do good and to share what we have. In Acts, we read that the very first church, among those who gathered to hear the, the, the sermon of Pentecost, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the feet of the apostles, and it was distributed to each as any had need. James asks us, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see, God does not change. And God's heart for the poor and vulnerable in society has not changed. And particularly, God has called us to care for those in need within our own congregation, those who are close to us. But just as the tides of the Old Covenant were meant to support these, the weak, the fatherless, the sojourner, these tithes were also meant to support the servants of God. And so we see the New Testament repeatedly commanding us to support financially the ministers of God's Word. In Romans, Paul says to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In his first letter to Timothy, he teaches that servants of God who rule well should be considered worthy of greater financial reward. He supports this by quoting from both the Old Testament and from Jesus, and Jesus' words recorded in Luke. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. We see also the example of what this giving should look like for the church. 
in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, he boasts of the generous giving of the churches in Macedonia. He writes that though they were being tested through affliction, in their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Here is a church that Paul is holding up as an example and an encouragement. And what do we see? We see a church not giving out of obligation to the law. We see a church not giving out of a sense of guilt, but a church that is giving out of an overflow of joy at the grace that they have received from God. This church didn't just give. They gave beyond their means. And they did so for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul goes on to explain this more. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. What I want you to see here is that as Christians, though we're not required to tithe, we are commanded to give from our wealth generously. This sacrificial giving is evidence that our love is genuine. That in a way, it's a way that we can imitate Christ who became poor, that we could become rich. It was Christ Himself, after all, that said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So how are we doing at this as a church? Are we giving generously? Are we giving out of a sense of guilt or out of an overflow of joy at the grace we've been shown by God in this local church? The Apostle Paul looked at our finances today. Would he write to other churches like this? about us? Would he boast of our generous giving and the grace that God was showing in our generosity? The Apostle Paul knew about your wealth and your spending habits and the way you offer to this church. Would he praise you? Would he see that as an evidence of the sincerity of your love for God's people? Perhaps you're thinking that you're not able to give to this church financially because you're just making enough money to get by. Well, hear this. No matter who you are, if you live in America today, you are wealthy. Every one of us living here today has won the lottery of God's providence simply by being an American in this century. We are going to experience a level of comfort and material prosperity that goes well beyond what most people who have ever lived on this earth will experience. And that goes for the richest in this room and the poorest in this room. 
So if you pay monthly for the latest iPhone instead of buying a flip phone that costs 30 bucks, if you regularly buy Starbucks coffee instead of making drip coffee at home, if you have a Netflix account, if you buy cigarettes each day, if you're eating regularly out at restaurants, if you have a pet that has vet bills and food bills, but you aren't financially supporting the ministry of this church, you are in sin. I say that not to make you feel condemned and hopeless and guilty, but to wake us up to what God has commanded us to do. So on this point, what this text means for us is the same as what it meant for Malachi's audience. Repent and obey. I want you to hear a few statistics on church giving. This didn't take me long to find. You can check them out yourself. A simple Google search will pull these up. Only 10 to 25% of any given congregation regularly gives financially to their church. 10 to 25% of this congregation, most likely, only gives to this church. On average, Christians give 2.5% of their income to their church. 2.5%. You know, some people think that the tithe amounted to something like maybe 10%. In reality, it probably amounted to more like 20%. And today we give, on average, 2.5%. During the Great Depression, Christians gave an average of 3.3%. That average weekly giving for an adult Protestant Christian, again, this is weekly giving, amounts to about $17. These numbers shock you? Are you surprised by this? We have to ask ourselves, are we any different? You know, I thank God regularly for what He's done in the life of this church here at 6th Avenue. These services our members meeting, our church covenant. I think all of these show that we have a reverence for God. We place supreme value on His revelation, on His Word, on His truth. We take care with our theology. We trust in His providence and the work of His Spirit rather than the pragmatism that's so prevalent in so many unhealthy churches around us. And so when I look at those churches, I am tempted, brothers and sisters, to feel pride for this church because theologically we are so strong. But what good is that sound theology if we don't obey God and love His Word and love the ministry of His Word and love one another enough to contribute financially to keep this church alive? It's meaningless. I think of Nehemiah finding that the people of Israel weren't paying the tithes to the Levites and seeing that the priests were back out in their fields trying to put food on their tables rather than performing their duties in the temple. As one commentator looking at today's text says, God identifies so closely with His servants that to rob them is to rob God. 
And so I think about that. And I ask myself, six months from now, a year from now, is somebody in this church going to be a widow? Somebody in this church going to suffer a financial hardship that is devastating and need the support of this church to overcome that and find that there's nothing for us to give them. And six months from now or a year from now, will we come here and find that there's no longer a Sunday school? There's no longer a Wednesday night Bible study because our lead teaching pastor, Sean, is working a second job at Starbucks so that he can afford health care for his family, so that he can put food on his table. Because we didn't value the ministry of the word enough to support him. Brothers and sisters, I pray that doesn't happen. But as a church, if we don't respond to God's word today, by loosening our grip on the wealth that He has given us. And it might. So I pray that we would be generous toward the ministry of God's Word. And that today's text would convict us if we need it. And that we would turn to Christ. That we would recognize the great mercy that our unchanging God has shown us. And we would give back to Him what He has so graciously given to us. Let's pray. Father, like Your people Israel, we are so often blind to our own sins. Like Your people, we ask, how have we turned away from You, Lord? How have we robbed You? And yet, Lord, we thank You that You've given us Your Word, Your truth to guide us to convict us, to point us into the right direction and to encourage us. And so, Lord, let us leave here today trusting in Your faithfulness, trusting in the power of Your Holy Spirit and in Your providence. But as Your Word says, He who gathers much will have little. and He who gathers little will have much. Amen. Please stand with me.